Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Joe Karabek, who is the CEO of Cobalt Blue SX, a Cobalt developer with assets in Australia. And if you want to hear our thoughts on the conversation and indeed the company itself, you can also get that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Uh, we can also find company reports, commentary from market experts from all around the world. If there are training videos on there, summaries of our other interviews that we've done. And of course, there's a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a safe environment. And if you go now, there's a seven day free trial. Joe, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Matthew. Thank you for having me on. No, it's good, good, good to have you back. Uh, I, I couldn't help but notice the facial growth. You're obviously bored. Is that it? Yeah, I've, I've succumbed to the uh, largesse of COVID and I've refused to totally shave. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> and in my defence, this is the sum total of a few weeks' growth. Impressive. It's impressive. I'm, I'm slightly jealous. <laughs> well, uh, Joe, good to have you back on because I think last time you were here, you kind of helped us try and understand the shape of the cobalt market, slightly opaque market. Um, we we mm. had a really good chat about that one. Um, today, we're going to do a little bit of both. We're going to talk about uh, the macro, get an update from you on that one, but also talk about your project, uh, Broken Hill, um, as well. So why don't you kind of kick off, give people that one minute overview of um, cobalt blue first before we get into it. Sure. Thank you. Um, for those I've not met, I'm Joe Kadravik. I'm the CEO of, of Cobalt Blue. Uh, Cobalt Blue has a primary asset, which is the Broken Hill Cobalt Project, which is uh, one of the largest greenfield cobalt producers uh, in the world. Um, by sheer tonnage, it will rank somewhere in the top 10 of all cobalt mines globally. We're an integrated mine refinery concept, so we're looking to make a value-added product, one of two types of product, an intermediate mixed hydroxide or a battery-ready cobalt sulphate. We're located in the safe jurisdiction of Australia, uh, and the uh, the tonnage is around three and a half thousand tonne of cobalt, broadly 17,000 tonne of the sulphate. Um, we're, we've recently put out an update which puts it at near 20 years, but we're, can, uh, we're comfortable that'll be well over a 20 year mine life uh, in, in due course, and at some fairly stunning low capital and uh, operating costs, which we can which, which we can talk to. Okay, brilliant, thanks, Jack. Um Since we've spoken, we've seen, um a lot more interest from generalists in commodities, which is great. Um, but with that comes a lot of uh, learning, uh, a lot of people asking questions about the state of play of the market. So we had a great conversation. We'll put a link to the last conversation we, we had with regards to cobalt generally. But where is a cobalt today? What's, what's the state of play? Because we've had a lot of um, people talking about you know, critical mineral lists from the US, from the EU. Um, we've seen, obviously, Tesla's battery day, so there's some interest around that. So can you give us an update, update as to where Cobalt sits today in your, in your mind? Sure, thank you. Look, we, what we're seeing is effectively a, a, a trialling end of a depressed period, which was COVID, and in, in Cobalt demand terms, that's really a, 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 a combination of either energy storage system or EVs. Um, but today we're seeing a market that's continuing to function, continue, continuing to wear down surface stocks. And it's only a matter of time, and I'll talk to why we're seeing that commercially, but I'll just preface this by saying it's only a matter of time before the demand in EV pickup that we're seeing globally via some of these large-scale uh, subsidy programs um, wears its, works its way through the supply chain. You simply can't multiply production by 15 times to approximately 25 to 30 million EVs per annum 
which is the accepted target um, by the market by 2025, you can't multiply commodity demand by 15 times without a significant demand pickup in the next 12 to 24 months. And that's what we're on the cusp of. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of planning involved because you've got a lot of these gigafactories being built around the world. You've got huge supply chains. We you know, we've talked about the the European uh, automotive uh, sector, you know, spending, you know, estimates anywhere from 200 billion to 300 billion of infrastructure, getting rid of this EV you know, revolution that people talk about. Um, that doesn't happen overnight. So. What sorts of conversations um, are, are being had down that supply chain? Because you, you've sold us in the past, Carbot's a small market, right? It's, 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 it, in terms of value, it's, it's huge. But in terms of volume, it's not very big. And there aren't that many players out there at the moment because it's been a, a tough few years. So, you know, how are, how are these um, supply chains interacting with the Cobalt producers? Sure. Let me just take a, I'll answer your question, but let me just take a step back with some of the um, idiosyncratic um, um, issues that we're seeing in the last six months. Firstly, the demand for cobalt and, and nickel um, in the sulfate space in particular is becoming increasingly ethically oriented. So 12 months ago and, and possibly as recently as six months ago, there weren't that many contracts, large-scale contracts for battery makers, which specified uh, ethical only sourcing or, or non-artisanal sourcing. Today, it's becoming increasingly the norm. It's not quite there yet as the norm, but it will be so eventually. Interestingly enough, on cobalt and nickel as well, we're starting to see contracts specified with no deep sea tails in, as part of the production chain. So a lot of that would be Indonesian and, and Filipino uh, sourcing as well. And we're seeing that affect the upstream as well in terms of how they deal with their own waste product. So. The first thing I'd say to you is that we're seeing contracts now let on large scale that reflect a more ethical uh, or sustainable origin of production, and, and that's both nickel and, and cobalt. Um, I also put to you as a logical extension of that, any new player that comes into that market as it's evolving, uh, I think non-DRC sourced cobalt will get a preference on a like-for-like -like basis elsewhere as a contract spec. So I think that's a space to watch, and it certainly plays into, into cobalt blues view. Um, what we're seeing in the market is the is a pre-qualification to enter into the production that you touched on before, that two to three hundred billion USD of committed or, or project capital towards these so-called gigafactories. Now, I've seen estimates of, of, of um, approximately 150 of these being built globally. We have, and I'll talk about us specifically in more detail, but we've got over 15 partners now, which some of whom are trading houses, and that represents a lion's share of, of this potential deployment. And what we've seen in the last six months, uh, uh, despite the backdrop of the, of the spot market, is um, customers who are saying to us, well, um, what we were interested in your product initially because we didn't know where it would fit, but hey, we've just committed to this particular facility and we need an answer pretty much in the next six months where your product will fit as a supply spec to this facility that we're going to put through two or $3 billion worth of our capital towards. And what it means is that we were expecting to ship wholesale samples in Q1. We're now recently been asked on, on a number of occasions to provide additional lab scale samples, even before our pilots in play, to satisfy some of that uh, pre-qualification. So um, what you're seeing is a huge dichotomy, I think, between the spot market and, and ultimately what is being set up strategically is, is the feedstock and production chain for these gigafactories in the next 
three to five years. See, that, see I find that fascinating because if you look at um, industries like lithium, where you know, people say, I think it's uh, to quote Elon Musk, you know, lithium's everywhere. We, <clears throat> we're bound to full volumes of lithium, but technically they go through the same process that you, are, you go through in terms of, you know, you, you work out what you've got, you build a pilot plant, you, you build, oh, sure, yeah. you know, and, and, and that, that whole process is well, well, well understood. But what's not happening in the lithium space, and I wonder if it might in the cobalt space because it's a much smaller uh, space with fewer um, ethically uh, produced uh, cobalt, um, would these partners get involved in financing companies like yourselves? Could they even give you letters you know, uh, which suggest there may, there may be some kind of contract down the line or some sort of professional uh, contract which allows you guys to get finance. I mean, because, you know, having, having come from the, the banking side, you, you don't want to go into a small company. I mean, you look, you know, let's face it, right today, you're, you know, 20 odd million market cap company yourself. Mm. It's hard to walk into a bank like us and say, hey, it's going to be fine. Look at the supply demand message because everyone's saying it. Uh, I need X dollars to build a plant, um, but trust me, it'll be fine. That's not kind of good enough. We need we need a sort of surety that the the demand is there with a piece of paper which says there's a contract <clears throat> or potential of a contract or a strategic partner, you know, or, fi- or other financial partner who's cornerstoning this or backing you guys up. So, how do you companies like you? Because there's not not many big cobalt companies out there, right? You're all sort of roughly in the same boat. Um, how do you give comfort to the financial institutions like us to say, give us the money, it'll be fine. We've got, we've got we've, the, the whole supply chain is, is secure. How does that work? Well, look, the, the current state of play is you use your balance sheet to actually overcome the, um, uh, the, the risk adversity of the project <laughs> financing industry. Um, we're not in, we don't have that uh, ability clearly, so we don't have a balance sheet to go into the market and back the project. So what we're doing is an extension of our earlier discussion effectively is proving up the project and de-risking it. So in July, we delivered a project update 2020 um, uh, announcement. Um, We substantially reduced operating cost. Um, And so today we're we're targeting a C1 operating cost of $9 US a pound for our cobalt sulfate. Now I'll just take a moment on that. That's the cash cost to make cobalt sulfate. That's not the cash cost to make a cons or, or, or an intermediate MHP. That is a cash cost to make a product that will go straight to a precursor or, or a battery maker, if you like. That bypasses the entire refining industry and allows us to keep that margin. Um, so that's that's uh, the first point is a major milestone that we delivered. We, we reduced some capex in the same process. We um, significantly increased the operating life of the assets. So the reserve life was up by 50%. Our operating uh, life went to 18 years. And as I said earlier, I think we're confident that'll raise 20 plus. So first and foremost, um, we took the fat out of the project. We did that in July. Now, as we're coming into our first larger scale pilot, and I'm talking about our ability to make two to 300 kilograms of, of this these products, um, then we are in a position then to, to send out 10 to 20 kilogram samples. Now, I touched on a, a few moments ago, some suppliers are actually asking us to predate the pilot with some further lab work, but whether or not it's lab work or pilot or ultimately our larger scale demonstration plant, we want to pre-qualify. By pre-qualifying, we open up doors to offtake, and I'm talking about binding offtake, not some 
you know, not some BS non, non-binding offtake with a third party that no one's heard of. These are real meaningful um, relationships. But importantly as well, the other side of that is um, uh, a joint venture equity exposure. So we see ourselves as naturally an owner of probably only 50% of the project. And we see a partner coming who's, who we've stepped through and de-risked the project with, who's, who has uh, satisfied themselves on the quality of our production, be it MHP or sulfate, and who is willing to take a 50% stake. And here's the key for you, Matthew, backstop in terms of risk guaranteeing the, uh, the, the project as an entirety. Because fundamentally, US 400 million, which is our pre-production capital number, is actually a very capital um, efficient deployment to secure three and a half thousand tonne of cobalt metal, 17,000 tonne of sulphate equivalent over a 20 year lifespan. No other project in the world comes close to that low level of capital intensity. So it's a long answer to your question, I apologize for it, but effectively it's a systematic stepping through of milestone product delivery, de-risking the key issue for us, which is processing, bringing partners in on that journey, tailoring the risk program to suit their needs, tailoring the output to suit their needs. We may well find a partner who prefers MHP rather than a battery product, but ultimately getting them in early, we've got a modest amount of capital remaining to get through to FS, and then ultimately um, have that partner backstop the project for um, uh, for the commercial plant. But this one I'm getting, and that's a great answer. Okay, so I have no problem with the length of that answer because it's, it's very fulsome, but it, the bit that I'm getting at is, and again, I'm going to quote a lithium quote here. So a lithium market commentator said, you know, uh, the Teslas of this world need us more than we need them. Okay, Be- right? That, that was a quote. I don't know. That's kind of a quite, quite an aggressive quote. Um, so whether you believe it or not is another matter. But um, likewise, for you guys, that that kind of statement is possibly even more relevant in the sense that there's just not a lot of, of cobalt at the moment. And we'll, and we'll come on to conversations about non-cobalt batteries in a second, but the, the need for cobalt um, is there. Does that mean that companies that or potential partners are skipping a few stages compared to where perhaps where they would have done historically? I mean, you're an, you're an, you're an ex-institutional guy, right? So you, you understand both, both sides of the mix here uh, and, and the supply chain. But do conversations with these strategic partners, um, have they evolved and changed? Do, are there shortcuts to the process? You've talked about them wanting to get, you know, smaller lab type samples now to try and understand, uh, you know, which um, materials are going to suit their particular needs further down the line. Mm-hmm. That's, that's like, is that, is that unusual? Is that, a, is that a new thing that's happening? Um, well, it is in our experience because up until now, up until the last 12 months, we've we've really been at lab scale. So typically for um, most companies in PFS, you're talking about tons, you know, 10 tons of, of ore produced all the way through to a final product. Now we're above that. We've done 50 tonne of work. We're about to do 100 tonne in pilot. And then ultimately in late next year, when we go to a larger scale demonstration plant, that's two to 3,000 tonne of ore and we're going to make two to three ton of this final product, and that's a that's a twenty four seven steady state proof. And a metallurgist will tell you who's worth their salt that you need that large scale continuous flow proof to then ultimately de risk the commercial plant. So whilst we're a bit surprised by being asked to provide product ahead of pilot, it's not an unusual outcome in the sense of we need your product to pre qualify. Or, or conversely, if your product is something we want to buy, is there a tweak we need in our capital or our program 
that, that we need to incorporate today um, because we have a very unusual cobalt-rich MHP and, and nickel is the secondary product, which is quite the opposite of, of, of the norm. Um, so I don't see any issues there. The, the downstream coming upstream is a phenomenon I think we've seen for a, for a few years. So everyone from an, uh, an EV OEM is looking at stakes and strategic stakes in raw material producers. Well, that's what I'm getting to. That's, what I'm, that's the point I'm getting to, because I'm trying to understand whether the sort of state of play in the marketplace, you know, the fact that people are looking to secure this um, supply for this sort of tidal wave demand that's coming down the line. Does that help a company like you? You know, you're kind of, you know, a small, relatively small company. You're, you need to uh, complete the feasibility study. Um, you need to build the pilot plan, and you know, money, money's tight at the moment. So, do does the sort of state of the market help those types of conversations? Oh, absolutely. The more pressure that the uh, the the ESS OEMs or the vehicle OEMs feel, the more pressure they put upstream. Um, where they're signalling their strategic intent for consumption of these production of these models and ultimately their, you know, their production requirements, um, you you will get pressure on the intermediates in that market, the trading houses or the, or the battery makers or the upstream of that, which is the precursor industry. They will start approaching us. We're at a point now where that interest is pre-qualification interest, which we talked about, but I think we'll be at a point naturally if we did nothing else as a company and just stood still, we'd be at a point where that would turn into project interest by virtue of the demand tightening that's going to happen in the market in the next 24 months. So if you just um, tread water and the tide will, will pick you up, which is, I'm, I'm sure is the um, modus operandi of a number of former cobalt, now nickel and soon to be cobalt again mines going forward. Um, but we don't believe in treading water. What we want to do is be in the ideal position. So. Our view is there's probably only two or three projects, Greenfield projects globally, that have a chance in a, in a, in a long-dated, normalised market of getting into production today. All of us in that category are cash-starved. That will change. That will change largely from a self-help angle as well as the macro. Um, and I think the market, as in the downstream, will realise that uh, yeah, in, in, in 12, 18 months' time. And... So that pressure that you talk talk about and that realization will will cause some unusual transactions. So it might be an OEM going all the way upstream, but likely to put pressure on the intermediates, the precursor and the battery guys, to secure their supply before the battery guys can then bid for the multi-year rollouts that those battery requirements dictate. I think I think people are starting to see this because if you look at the um, Tesla Battery Day. Uh, well, I think it was a couple of days later, actually, they announced the, the Piedmont Spodgeming um, deal. You know, these things happen all the time, but they happen in sort of quiet in the background, but there's nothing ever quiet about Tesla. Um, so I think people appreciate that these conversations are starting to happen more and more. Um, but what do you, what do you think the, um, the kind of fallout was after uh, Tesla Battery Day when they talked about batteries with non-cobalt um, components to, you know, it, 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 did that sort of knock the cobalt industry or was that so much discussed or was it well understood well before then? Look, I think uh, I'll answer your question two ways. One from the investment market where there were those who uh, weren't quite as fundamental who saw it as a harbinger of all things to come. Um, I would say this um, quite emphatically that uh, the Battery Day probably had 50 separate technical projects under its belt. And overwhelmingly, 
um, the bulk of those were on the ability to make the car cheaper, uh, you know, in, and, and the, the capital requirement for those so-called gigafactories, or I think he used the word terafactory at one stage. So overwhelmingly, it was the production capacity to make the vehicles. Within the vehicle, the bill of materials, there was a number of initiatives. The battery gets a, obviously a disproportionate focus given its cost. Um, one of those projects was to do with the high nickel elimination. Um, I would say this to you, and, and it's clear, not just Tesla, but others that we deal with share a similar stratification of the EV market. There is a low end market out there, passenger vehicle, commercial market, and it's predominantly Chinese based and it feeds off an LFP battery. So it's a non-nickel, non-cobalt battery. It's been in place for 20 odd years. Um, the LFP is a Chinese formulation and these are typically sub 200 mile range urban vehicles. They're tiny little box-like vehicles if you haven't seen them. Um, sticker price, five, six, seven US thousand dollars. Um, and ultimately, when we get into rideshare and all that robo stuff, yeah, it's probably a great platform for that. Overwhelmingly globally, and indeed in China itself, the mass market EVs, the passenger and the commercial vehicles, are all NCM, NCA, NMCA, or soon to be NMCA chemistry. So they're all cobalt, nickel um, chemistries. They have a superior energy density of about 30% over the LFP. Yet, even the most ardent um, supporters of the LFP in China concede that there's only about a 2 or 3% price difference at a pack level between the LFP and an 811. So there's really a tiny difference in cost. So that speaks to the fact that those LFP vehicles are built to a cost rather than to a standard, if you like. So overwhelmingly, mass market EVs, certainly ex-China, will be dominated by cobalt. The question is, what's the ultimate level? What's the battery um, standard in that chemistry? Today, we're still at a 532, broadly on an NMC. Um, the 622 will, will get some pace in the next year or two, and then ultimately the 811 is the, the dream. But getting that right commercially is hard. There are some examples where that has gone wrong. Um, so all OEMs will be very reticent, given you mentioned before the two or 300 billion the battery guys are putting in, the 500 billion that we've recently um, uh, a number of consultants are quoting for OEMs committing, who's going to save one or 2% on those costs and endanger that capital uh, spend by trying to uh, leapfrog technologies which haven't been proven. So the 622 will happen. The 811, I have no doubt, will bed in ultimately. But by the time you make those vehicles go through the production runs, it's the end of the decade or longer before you have a credible threat to try and eke out that one or 2% cost saving. And that's what I think the key message for the market didn't understand from the investor point of view is that there's, sure, there's some nice targets to reduce cost and sure, cobalt is a small part of that overall cost equation. But the reality of stepping into that is so far away today. And just look at the progress those batteries have made in three years. Those high nickel batteries haven't really done more than uh, come off the lab scale. In fact, they're still at the lab scale. So that's first point, sorry, again, long-winded point. The investors don't understand that there is a um, there's a inertia in the current system, and that won't be usurped by new technology in in, in the near period. Um, the 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 other aspect I'm I'm seeing is that um, uh, with respect to to uh, uh, to cobalt, is that um, it's really starting to become a very minor cost saving overall. One of one of the interesting quotes I got from. The day was an analyst pointed out that 
if you amortize the cost of the battery over the life cycle of the vehicle, it becomes about, in US terms, a penny a mile. That's roughly what the battery costs you. The tyres cost you three pennies a mile because it goes through tyres, like, because these are high torque. So I say that slightly tongue in cheek, but there's ultimately a limited end game of how much you're going to end up thrifting out of the battery when it costs you three times as much to put rubber on the road. And I think it's been said to me a number of times from some industry participants that the, the, the battery is actually starting to evolve and slash mature in a lot of the ways. There's some interesting things happening on the anode side, but nevertheless, there's a maturing happening and there will be a step change, but certainly not in the foreseeable future. That's fascinating. I like that. <laughs> the tire is three times the cost of the, of the cobalt component, but it is yeah. the battery is still, you can't get away from it, the most expensive uh, element in there. And, you know, shaving, shaving costs across, you know, multiple components is, is, you know, the dream. And people do talk about the price of these things, and, they do, and it does need to come down to be more um, accessible. Like you know, because you know we're, we've uh, we've looked at it and we 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 went um, we did, which is not to go battery here because it's just we're still paying for the R and D costs and it's just something it's a bit hard to stomach. Um, but anyway, it, it, it's coming down the line. Should we talk about your project? Um, so I know we've touched upon it at various points there, but I, only only because I'm trying to understand how companies like yourself, of which there are many, not not just in cobalt try and interact with the supply chain further further down and it was just that one thought of from that lithium guy going you know they need us more than we need them which you know it's a, again a little bit tongue-in-cheek and take it with a pinch of salt literally uh with the lithium clays um and uh, it, it just in my mind helps me understand the time frame by which you guys are operating and understanding i mean in, in fact just before we go on to you it, it, what do you think the time frame is for? Because if you talked about 2025 20, uh, needing to have 15 times the amount of material, mm-hmm. people need to be mining that. It needs to be uh, getting into the process of, of mining pretty darn soon, right? So when do you think the, that kind of massive uptick comes? It's got to be in the next couple of years, surely. Well, uh, the problem, I guess on the positive side, there's latent capacity that we know that some of the... Um, the, the existing production globally has been shuttered and there's the, the famous example of Mutanda in, in the DRC. So there is some latent capacity there. Mm. Um, all mines, as you'd be well aware, have their own latent capacity. You know, you run additional shifts, you buy some additional equipment and you start sweating the assets for what they're worth. So there is some, some industry capacity there. Um, but unless you get a co-timing of copper and nickel, which will then incentivize those byproduct uh, units of cobalt in particular, I don't see how any other than a price signal will eventuate from that from that tightness. Um, the price signal will liberate further stocks. There are certain stocks um, in, that, that can come out. Uh, the price signal will cannibalise uh, cobalt away from low economic uses. So, for example, hard-facing tools, some of those industrial applications, um, cobalt will be priced out of those markets. But for that, 55%, which is batteries, for that other 20 to 25%, which is super alloys, which so super alloys, the cobalt doesn't constitute a large bill of materials for the airframe or the or the um, the engine. And bear in mind, I think there are industries that'll struggle anyway given COVID. But um, you really are talking about a price signal, and and that may accelerate the thrifting issues that we talked about. But 
it's not going to cause any evolution or so any revolution to change in terms of chemistry. It simply can't. So the, the industry has got some decisions to make. And the, one of the quotes I saw recently, an interesting one, is for every dollar spent in the upstream raw materials for all battery materials, the midstream refining and the battery end is committing broadly $20. So it's a one to 20 ratio. And what we're seeing is if you take those two numbers you mentioned, you know, the, the battery numbers and the EV numbers, that would infer that we need to be spending 20 or 30 billion in nickel, copper, um, manganese and the rest. I can tell you nickel and, and, and cobalt in particular, cobalt, no way is even a fraction of that number being deployed today because the price signal just does not exist. I think there's a convers another conversation to be had here around what, what will this distraction of, sorry, sorry the, the, some of these materials are going to have to go into, you know, the batteries side of things. It means that other industries are going to be perhaps priced out of those commodities and have to come up with other solutions. What's that going to do to those those industries? Um, but let's say that's a kind of big topic for another day, sort of trying to work out who's going to be impacted most. Um, okay, Broken Hill, where are we? What's the update? Okay, so I'll just take a couple of steps back and give you a holistic picture. So the project update we released in July, which was effectively a, a, a cost optimization and a project life optimization of the previous PFS. Um, we've updated the ore reserve we're in, we're, uh, by over 50%. Um, we now have a 18 year operating life for the mine. We're very confident that with some further step out drilling, we'll get that to 20 plus, which is always the hard guidance to the market. Uh, production has remained at around three, three and a half thousand tonne of cobalt metal equivalent and about 17 and a half thousand tonne equivalent in, in cobalt sulfate terms. And that's across the entirety of the life. We've lowered pre-production capex, um, which was a bit of an accidental outcome because we were largely looking to lower opex, but we found that by eliminating our tailings dam uh, and uh, effectively routing our leach product back into the pit through an integrated waste concept, um, then that lowered our capital costs as well as materially lowering our operating costs. So our capital pre-production costs about US 400 million, which again, I mentioned earlier, is about a third to a quarter of any comparable greenfield mine in the world producing that's that tonnage of, of, of cobalt. Um, we effectively have replaced the, the tailings, which I talked about before. We also moved earlier in the year, just prior to that, we're to 100% ownership. So we've clarified that over the course of this year. So we're now 100% owners of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, um, of the project. And we're now moving towards an FS, a feasibility study, um, which we, uh, we will have due in mid 2022. Prior to that, in Q1 next year, we'll have a pilot, which I touched on will make one to 200 kilograms of both intermediate and final product. That'll be our first largest scale proof. That'll get us pre-qualification um, entry to a number of facilities. The demo plant, demonstration scale plant will be um, later next year, Q3 starting onwards, much bigger scale, two to 3,000 tonne of, of ore and making two to three tonne of MHP and sulphate. And we intend to dispatch that much sample that um, battery makers can actually make a test battery from it. So ultimately the proof of putting in the product is the ability to make a two-spec battery. Okay. And But to do that, you need to release larger scale. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so as I talked about, FS due mid-2022, parallel we've got EIS studies, parallel we've got all the state approvals, et cetera. And we're looking to get financing in place at the same time, 
to make an FID in mid-2022. And that financing starts with, effectively, with pilot and more recently with some of the requests for pre-pilot production. So all of that really starts now. Okay, so uh, t- t- tell me about out. that. The, the, the money side of things is so important. Like you, you, 20 million odd market cap, you need cash, okay? And you need somebody who believes in you enough to finance these things. So one, um, 2022 is, well, let's say you said mid-2022. So you, we're, we're sort of 20, 20 odd months away from that. You're going to need to get finance for that. Um, to build a pilot plant, I mean, have you, have you costed that yet? Yeah, so we recently raised, we've just actually just finished in the last two months a raise both to the institutional market and to uh, shareholders of some uh, over 7 million. So we've got eight and a half cash on hand. That fully, the, the primary use of those funds is to get us through through pilot and all those uh, associated expenses. So we're fully funded for pilot. Um, we then have some further needs to get through demo and FS. Um, in terms of what does the waterfall diagram look like between a 20 million market cap company and a, and a 400 US million dollar project, it it all relies on finding a suitable partner, a partner who understands the capital intensity argument. Is so if you if you, if a partner needs upstream exposure for cobalt in order to secure the supply, this is an outstanding project. This is a project that they'll spend, I said, a third to a quarter of any other comparable project. It's a project that will deliver to them a nine dollars cash or all in sustaining of around $12 for the sulfate. Bear in mind today, even at a depressed cobalt price, sulfate's trading at $16 a pound. So even today, if we were in business, we'd make a, a 30 plus percent margin on that on a sustained cost basis. So it shows you the economic resilience of the project. So by bringing a partner in and let's say broadly half of the, of the project costs, there's 200 million we need to fund. But importantly, um, that's an asset we're giving away, but the quid pro quo is that the partner would then guarantee the project from a, a banking perspective. So they'd come in behind us and say to the bank, we will guarantee the offtake on this. So effectively, they would have a sole source offtake agreement. In project financing, as you're aware, um, the first five years, six years counts, that's gold. And so therefore, you've got a construction period, two to three, and then you've got an initial production period of two, maybe three at most. You better hit your, your your milestones in those two to three, and you better be able to show the bank you can hit your milestones. But if you've got a partner sitting behind you, here's a guaranteed USD offtake in hard dollars for this commodity, which, by the way, isn't particularly well traded globally. You can't hedge it, you can't de-risk it. But here's a here's the contract uh, which will turn that that product into revenue, and stands behind it in terms of process guarantees. That goes a significant step in de-risking the other two hundred million. Of which we we'll then look at debt equity style. Um, right, um, <clears throat> and I know you understand this because you come from the institutional side. Okay, I know you understand it, and I know you you know how to position it. So, from for my benefit, that means that if you don't mind, um, that says there's very few people that you'd be going and talking to. You know all of these players, and you probably know who you would prefer to team up with. So, how are those conversations going? Where are you at? What can you tell us? Yeah, so we we have we're actively searching for um, partners, and in the in the near term, that's a partner to get us through to FS. So it's as simple as that. So for what is a modest amount of capital, um, a partner can come in and get a, a, a an advantage with respect to some commercial um, arrangements uh, later. Um, partners, we, 
in order to be attractive for a partner, we have to fulfill their risk return profile. So we're talking to two different branches. One is those who are, for example, mining companies who may want the mining risk that this entails and add value to us in that way. Others may be a, a, a refinery or a precursor maker who really aren't interested in how we dig the dirt, but are interested more in the processing side and how they can tailor the, the raw cobalt head grade into a product and, 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 and may surprise you, but MHP is a very well-traded product. So typically conversations with chemical partners or commercial partners tend to start at MHP and some, some, some value add from there because they can make a sulfate as well as we can. Um, and ultimately, what returns do they want in, in the case of refining? What returns do they want to, if they have to commit that style of capital in terms of product, longevity, quality? And then overlay the de-risked profile that is Australia and, and, and jurisdiction under the Australian sovereign, um, we shape up pretty well. And then you back up the conversation we had earlier, which is how many projects are being actively advanced right now. Not projects where you're spending a few bucks on, on rock chips or drill holes and just keeping the tyres the, the, the ticking over, but actively progressing towards a milestone of either a PFS or an FS. Okay. That's rare right now in Cobalt. Okay. Language is really important. You used the phrase there, so we're searching for a partner. I, I don't want to hear you searching for a partner because you must know who they are. You must be in conversations with these people um, because there are very few players out there. And they're going to, and you've, you've divided them one way. I'm going to divide them another way. Chinese, non-Chinese, do you care where your money comes from? Okay. So I'll answer your question, but I'll give you a... <laughs> tidbit on who we are dealing with. Publicly, um, we have been able to announce three partners in, in various forms. LG, who is a shareholder of ours and, and a key first mover partner, and they're interested on the cobalt side of our business. Um, Mitsubishi, who have uh, we have a, a, an agreement to do some test marketing work on the sulfur side. So that's the other 20% of our revenue equation, sulfur, which in Australia is largely a, a fertilizer precursor. And more recently, Sojitz Corporation from Japan, which is a well-renowned um, trading house, and they're again interested in the on the cobalt, um, you know, side of things. So that are three named. Behind them now are getting close to fifteen other partners, trading houses, mining houses, um, uh, refineries. Those who either want to take active financial exposure, or more commonly a combination of financial and off-taking style exposure. Um, I think. For us, it's a case of build it and they will come with the pilot. So all else being equal on the macro landscape, once we can deliver scale um, uh, test product, and there's a huge difference in the plausibility of a project between a, a test tube or a thimble full of product and the first large pre-qualification scale test work for, for battery makers. Massive difference in the two. Right, okay. And that's where it will be a step change for us. Okay, right? so, you, um, you've, so there's eight, 18 groups there. Um, any of those Chinese? I'm trying to. What I'm trying to work out is how oh, how influential is the Australian government's position or stance with China at the moment in terms of your ability to do business? Well, I would have to say to you, it's very. It's probably the only word you need to hear. It's very influential. Um, we have. Um, I'll tread carefully here. We have already taken steps to understand from an Australian government perspective what a. Uh, what a series of foreign investors, what hurdles they would need to to jump in order to take 
larger stakes, and obviously you segment them by country of origin. Um, so on one hand, you've got China, which can be, from a policy point of view, way more problematic to deal with. On the other hand, and I'll just put out an example, Australia and India signed an MOU for critical materials recently. Now, no one's talking about that. There's a country of a billion people that have virtually zero upstream exposure for raw materials in, in, in either critical minerals or, or battery materials. Um, and that's a much simpler pathway for us to get government approval or FERB approval in this case. We're also dealing in government policy. So there's, there's the um, uh, ownership issues, but there's also other government policies. So we're dealing with critical materials facilitation office people. Uh, so it's a case of who you can and can't play with, but it's also a case of where the government can actually assist you as well. There's the other part of that equation. So there's some very strong government policy in trying to assist in, in, in these battery critical materials. We've yet to see any of it um, in terms of rubber hitting the road in terms of deployable funds, but that's just a matter of time. If you want to keep the margin for these materials in this country, nickel, cobalt, manganese, you know, rare earths, then the government's going to have to deploy some funds to make sure that that value-added processing can occur in this country. And that's even after you've answered the question of how you get it out of the ground, because some of us need help in that as well. And, and the policy is being drafted to help the smaller end of the market in these critical spaces to come to market. See, I, th I think that's fascinating because you're seeing the US government doing something similar. Um, they're getting involved mm. with nickel projects down in Brazil. You know, I think mm. that's that's great. I think the UK government doing the same thing, getting involved with the project mm. with uh, with Rolls Royce um, as well. You know, so they're just kind of stepping into the private sector just a little bit more as this critical minerals agenda seems to you know, well, it's, it's coming it's coming to front of stage. It, it seems at the moment it's become very very topical. You know, when mm. I consider five years ago, rare earths, critical minerals, not sure anyone really cared. You know, um, so I, I think it's interesting times for sure. Um, so can, just just on the the um, demo plant, um, why that scale? Shouldn't you start smaller? Well, actually, great question because the there's a number of reasons, but I'll give you a very strong commercial one because a number of very large potential partners said that they have been historically involved with projects, billion dollar projects, and, and I'll name one of them. Um, Ambatovi in Madagascar was eight, nine years ago, a two billion USD um, you know, nickel cobalt laterite project. They had performed numerous tests on very large demonstration scale. But when it came time to deploy and build and commission a, a commercial plant, it never worked. It never worked because they simply didn't transition the scale large enough to, to, to iron out all the issues. Today, that same plant is 8 billion USD and has never hit nameplate, certainly not in cobalt terms. So its owners are very frustrated with that outcome. And the experiential negatives that that entailed, not only in those owners, but in the industry as a whole, said, hang on, you got 800 ppm cobalt in the ground. That's kind of interesting, but you're going to go straight to a battery material. That's very interesting at a low cost. What's the downside? The downside, sorry, the risk, not the downside, the risk has got to be in the processing because Australia is a safe jurisdiction. The geology is pretty boring. It's fairly standard disseminated um, cobalt and pyrite. All the above ground factors, the political factors, are they're, they're, we're semi-desert. We've got a very pro mining jurisdiction in Broken Hill. The key standout for the market for partners is, is prove up the processing. We may well find, Matthew, that 
we find a partner who says, actually, scale the demo even higher. They may say, make it quasi-commercial. And then from our point of view, um, being somewhat commercially greedy, we'll use that same plant to prove up our technology on other people's property. And that's the key. By building our own um, metallurgical test centre, if you like, we can start to um, uh, showcase our technology on, on other properties, not just in the Broken Hill District, but also South Australia and, and also in Queensland. And that's a really important part of our business. Are you frustrated with the market's reaction to you? Because you've been advancing things. You know what you're doing. You know what you want to do. You're speaking to all the right people. You've raised a little bit of money. Um, you've got enough to kind of get you through, say, the next next few stages. Are you surprised by the lack of interest? Or was it expected? I've, you know, we've I've been around in this role for about four years, and and in cobalt it's like dog years. Where we, I was on the other side of the cycle in 2017, and just before it went, you know, exponential, and we had our times where we floated at 20 cents, and we suddenly found ourselves at you know 14 or 15 cents, and no one's listening. We're saying actually, you know what? We've just come back from Asia. This is what the market's telling us. If I look relative to today, we've got a much more refined product, a much more tighter project, and, and a project who's, who, who, by virtue of our technical work, has proved up to be very commercially competitive globally. But I'm seeing the same wave this time around. We're talking, cobalt is in the too hard basket, I think, for, for a lot of investors, particularly those who don't have a deep view on, 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 on the market and these things, a technical view. Um, but I think it's just a matter of time. Look, the cobalt price hits 20 bucks a pound which I think will be the case the next 12, 18 months, certainly, the interest factor will go up by, by a factor of 10. The, the, the amount of sample requests we'll get will swamp our plant's ability to, to provide those. And it's just a matter of switching. And, and as soon as people understand that the aspirations of the get rid of cobalt technical guys are really aspirational and are, are long dated, and that cobalt is a, is, a, is a given for a cathode of the future, then... I think the market will make that link. So before I put my money into your company, I want to know how many more dilutory um, events are there before you start getting into some clever, more structured finance? Well, I'll answer your question this way. I, I, the entire reason we're building the plant in, in Q, or sorry, building it now, we actually will have it completed by Christmas, but we'll turn it on and commission it in Q1, um, is to answer your question. Um, and that is, A, I have a product which will go out to commercial partners, which will get us pre-qualified, but it's the bait, if you like, commercially that gets us into that conversation. For a commercial partner to get us through to FS from here is a small uh, capital in injection. To answer your question, ideally we've done with capital raisings on the market because if a partner comes in, they'll come in um, helping us through. We'll cut a deal. We have a number of very innovative um uh, project equity offerings already in, amongst partners, very innovative in the sense of they don't take too much risk and all the economics will be due risk on final FS. In other words, it, there's, a, there's a circuit breaker there that will put the economic reality of the final project, not just what we think it's worth today. And, and, the, and the contribution's modest. The other thing that uh, partners are seeing is a genuine attempt to develop a project today. We're running at this thing very hard. So, we're not sitting there on one hand saying we need a partner, we've got a great project, and by the way, we're just turning our wheels. We're, we're by hook or by crook, either with your help as a future investor or a commercial partner, we'll get to FS on this thing. Great. Joe, 
Great run through. Um, glad things are advancing, going well, um, and appreciate your insight in the market as well. That's that's always appreciated. So, uh, thanks for the update. Good luck with the the build. Um, I guess Q one turning the turning the uh, switch or pressing the button, whatever you do. Um, let us know how you get on. Okay. Thank you kindly, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to be on the show again. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.